This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today we have a special episode featuring one of my favorite authors and humans, George Saunders, and a song written in response by Craig Finn of The Hold Steady. The story George chose for this episode is Sea Oak, and because it's almost an hour long, it'll be served up in two parts. The first half will include a conversation with George and I and a song I wrote in response to the story, and the second half will include a conversation with Craig Finn and George and Craig's song. For now, here's George Saunders reading the first half of Sea Oak. Sea Oak. At six, Mr. Frent comes on the PA and shouts, Welcome to Joysticks. Then he announces, Shirts off. We take off our flight jackets and fold them up. We take off our shirts and fold them up. Our scarves we leave on. Thomas Kirster's our beautiful boy. He's got long muscles and bright blue eyes. The minute his shirt comes off, two fat ladies hustle up the aisle and stick some money in his pants and ask, Will he be their pilot? He says, sure. He brings their salads. He brings their soups. My phone rings and the caller tells me to come see her in the Spitfire mock-up. Does she want me to be her pilot? I'm hoping. Inside the Spitfire is Margie, who says she's been diagnosed with chronic shyness syndrome, then hands me an Instamatic and offers me ten bucks for a close-up of Thomas's tush. Do I do it? Yes, I do. It could be worse. It is worse for Lloyd Betts. Lately he's put on weight and his hair's gone thin. He doesn't get a call all shift and waits zero tables and winds up sitting on the P-51 wing, playing solitaire in a hunched-over position that gives him big gut rolls. I pilot six tables and make $40 in tips plus five an hour in salary. After closing, we sit on the floor for debriefing. There are times, Mr. Frent says, when one must move gracefully to the next station in life, like, for example, certain women in Africa or Brazil, I forget which, who either color their faces or don some kind of distinctive headdress upon achieving menopause. Are you with me? One of our ranks must now leave us. No one is an island in terms of being thought cute forever, and so today we must say goodbye to our friend Lloyd. Lloyd, stand up so we can say goodbye to you. I'm sorry. We are all so very sorry. Oh, God says Lloyd. Let this not be true. But it's true. Lloyd's finished. We give him a round of applause, and Frank gives him a farewell pen and the contents of his locker in a trash bag, and out he goes. Poor Lloyd. He's got a wife and two kids and a sad little duplex on self-storage parkway. It's been a pleasure, he shouts desperately from the doorway, trying not to burn any bridges. What a stressful workplace. The minute your cute rating drops, you're a goner. Guests rank us as knockout, honey pie, adequate, or stinker. Not that I'm complaining. At least I'm working. At least I'm not a stinker, like Lloyd. I'm a solid honey pie adequate, heading home with 40 bucks cash. At Sea Oak, there's no sea and no oak, just a hundred subsidized apartments and a rear view of FedEx. Min and Jade are feeding their babies while watching How My Child Died Violently. Min's my sister. 
Jade's Our Cousin. How My Child Died Violently is hosted by Matt Merton, a six-foot-five blonde who's always giving the parents shoulder rubs and telling them they've been sainted by pain. Today's show features a 10-year-old who killed a 5-year-old for refusing to join his gang. The 10-year-old strangled the 5-year-old with a jump rope, filled his mouth with baseball cards, then locked himself in the bathroom and wouldn't come out until his parents agreed to take him to Fun Time Zone, where he confessed, then dove screaming into a mesh cage full of plastic balls. The audience is shrieking threats at the parents of the killer, while the parents of the victim urge restraint and forgiveness to such an extent that finally the audience starts shrieking threats at them too. Then it's a commercial. Min and Jade put down the babies and light cigarettes and pace the room while studying aloud for their GEDs. It doesn't look good. Jade says regicide is a virus. Min locates Biafra one planet from Saturn. I offer to help and they start yelling at me for condescending. You're lucky, man my sister says, you did high school. You got your friggin' diploma. We don't. That's why we have to do this GED shit. If we had our diplomas, we could just watch TV and not be all distracted. Really, says Jade. Now shut it, chick. We gotta study. Show's almost done. They debate how many sides a triangle has. They agree that Churchill was an opera. Matt Merton comes back and explains that last week's show on suicide, in which the parents watched a reenactment of their son's suicide, was a healing process for the parents, then shows a video of the parents admitting it was a healing process. My sister's baby is Troy. Jade's baby is Mac. They crawl off into the kitchen and Troy gets his finger caught in the heat vent. Min rushes over and starts pulling. Jesus freaking Christ, screams Jade. Watch it. Stop yanking on him and get the freaking Vaseline. You're going to give him a really long arm, man. Troy starts crying. Mac starts crying. I go over and free Troy, no problem. Meanwhile, Jade and Min get in a slap fight and nearly knock over the TV. Yo, chick! Min shouts at the top of her lungs. I'm sure you're slapping me and then you knock over the freaking TV. Don't you care? I care, Jade shouts back. You're the slut who nearly pulled off her own kid's finger for no freaking reason, man. Just then, Aunt Bernie comes in from Drugtown in her Drugtown cap and hobbles over and picks up Troy and... Everything calms way down. No need to fuss, little man, she says. Everything's fine. Everything's just hunky-dory. Hunky-dory, says Min, and gives Jade one last pinch. Aunt Bernie's a peacemaker. She doesn't like trouble. Once this guy backed over her foot at Food King and she walked home with ten broken bones. She never got married because Grandpa needed her to keep house after Grandma died. Then he died and left all his money to a woman none of us had ever heard of, and Aunt Bernie started in at Drugtown. But she's not bitter. Sometimes she's so non-bitter, it gets on my nerves. When I say Sea Oak's a pit, she says she's just glad to have a roof over her head. When I say I'm tired of being broke, she says Grandpa once gave her pencils for Christmas, and she was so thrilled she sat around sketching horses all day on the backs of used envelopes. Once I asked, was she sorry she never had kids? And she said, no, not at all. And besides, weren't we her kids? And I said, yes, we were. But of course, we're not. For dinner, it's beanie weenies. For dessert, it's ice cream with freezer burn. What a nice day we've had, Aunt Bernie says once we've got the babies in bed. Man, what an optometrist, says Jade. Next day is Thursday, which means a visit from Ed Anders from the Board of Health. He's in charge of ensuring that 
our penises never show. Also that we don't kiss anyone. None of us ever kisses anyone or shows his penis except Sonny Vance, who does both because he's saving up to buy a Faxit franchise. As for our penile simulators, yes, we can show them. We can let them stick out the top of our pants. We can even periodically dampen our tight pants with spray bottles so our simulators really contour. But our real penises, no, those have to stay inside our hot, uncomfortable, oversized simulators. Sorry, fellas. Hi, fellas, Anders says as he comes wearily in. Please know I don't like this any better than you do. I went to school to learn how to inspect meat, but this certainly wasn't what I had in mind. <laughs> he orders a Lindbergh enchilada and eats it cautiously, as if it's alive and he's afraid of waking it. Sonny Vance is serving soup to a table of hairstylists on a bender, and for a twenty, shoots them a quick look at his unit. Just then, Anders glances up from his Lindbergh. Oh, for crying out loud, he says, and writes up a shutdown and we all get sent home early, which is bad. Every dollar counts. Lately, I've been sneaking toilet paper home in my briefcase. I can fit three rolls in. By the time I get home, they're usually flat and don't work so great on the roller, but still saves a few bucks. I clock out and cut through the strip of forest behind FedEx. Very pretty. A raccoon scurries over a fallen oak and starts nibbling at a rusty bike. As I come out of the woods, I hear a shot. At least I think it's a shot. It could be a backfire. But no, it's a shot because then there's another one, and some kids sprint across the courtyard yelling that big scary dogs rule. I run home. Min and Jade and Aunt Bernie and the babies are huddled behind the couch. Apparently they had the babies outside when the shooting started. Troy's walker got hit. Luckily, he wasn't in it. It's supposed to look like a duck, but now the beak's missing. Man, fuck this shit, Min shouts. Freak this crap, you mean, says Jade. You want them growing up with shit mouse like us? Crap mouse, I mean? I just want them growing up, period, says Min. Boo-hoo, Miss Dramatic, says Jade. Fuck off, Miss Ho, shouts Min. I mean it, Jagoff. I'm not kidding, shouts Jade and punches Min in the arm. Girls, for crying out loud, says Aunt Bernie. We should be thankful. At least we got a home. And at least none of them bullets actually hit nobody. No offense, Bernie, says Min, but you call this a freaking home? Sea Oak's not safe. There's an ad hoc crack house in the laundry room, and last week Min found some brass knuckles in the kiddie pool. If I had my way, I'd move everybody up to Canada. It's nice there. Very polite. We went for a weekend last fall and got a flat tire, and these two farmers with bright red faces insisted on fixing it, then springing for dinner, then starting a college fund for the babies. They sent us the stock certificates a week later, along with a photo of all of us eating cobbler at a diner. But moving to Canada takes bucks. Dad's dead and left us nada, and Mana lives with Freddy, who doesn't like us. Plus, he's not exactly rich himself. He does phone polls. This month, he's asking divorced women how often they backslide and sleep with their exes. He gets ten bucks for every completed poll. So, not lucrative, and Canada's a moot point. I go out and find the beak of Troy's duck and fix it with Elmer's. Actually, you know what, says Aunt Bernie, I think that looks even more like a real duck now, because sometimes their beaks are cracked. I've seen one like that downtown. Oh my God, says Min. The kid's duck gets shot in the face and she says we're lucky. Well, we are lucky, says Bernie. Somebody's beak is cracked, says Jade. You know what I do if something bad happens? 
Ernie says, I don't think about it. Don't take it so serious. It ain't the end of the world. That's what I do. That's what I always done. That's how I got where I am. My feeling is, Bernie, I love you, but where are you? You work at Drugtown for a minimum. You're 60 and own nothing. You were basically a slave to your father and never had a date in your life. I mean, complain if you want, she says, but I think we're doing pretty darn good for ourselves. Oh, we're doing great, says Min, and pulls Troy out from behind the couch and brushes some duck shards off his sleeper. Joysticks reopens on Friday. It's a madhouse. They've got the fog on. A bridge club offers me 15 bucks to oil wrestle Mel Turner. So I oil wrestle Mel Turner. They offer me 20 bucks to feed them chicken wings from my hand. So I feed them chicken wings from my hand. The afternoon flies by. Then the evening. At nine, the bridge club leaves and I get a sorority. They sing intelligent, nasty songs and grope my simulator and say they'll never be able to look their boyfriend's meager genitalia in the eye again. Then Mr. Friend comes over and says, phone. It's Min. She sounds crazy. Four times in a row she shrieks, get home. When I tell her calm down, she hangs up. I call back and no one answers. No biggie. Min's prone to panic. Probably one of the babies is pukey. Luckily I'm on flex time. I'll be back. I say to Mr. Friend, I look forward to it, he says. I jog across the marsh and through FedEx. Up on the hill, there's a light from the last remaining farm. Sometimes we take the boys to the adjacent car wash to look at the cow. Tonight, however, the cow is elsewhere. At home, Min and Jade are hopping up and down in front of Aunt Bernie, who's sitting very, very still at one end of the couch. Keep the babies out, shrieks Min. I don't want them seeing something dead. Shut up, man, shrieks Jade. Don't call her something dead. She squats down and pinches Aunt Bernie's cheek. Aunt Bernie, she shrieks. Fuck, we already tried that like twice, chick, shrieks Min. Why are you doing that shit again? Touch her neck and see if you can feel that beating thing. Shit, 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 shrieks Jade. I call 911 and the paramedics come out and work hard for 20 minutes. Then give up and say they're sorry and it looks like she's been dead most of the afternoon. The apartment's a mess. Her money drawer is empty and her family photos are in the bathtub. Not a mark on her, says a cop. I suspect she died of fright, says another. Fright of the intruder? My guess is yes, says a paramedic. Oh, God, says Jade. God, God, God. I sit down beside Bernie. I think I am so sorry. I'm sorry I wasn't here when it happened, and sorry you never had any fun in your life, and sorry I wasn't rich enough to move you somewhere safe. I remember when she was young and wore pink stretch pants and made us paper chains out of Drugtown receipts while singing Froggy Went a Courtin'. All her life she worked hard. She never hurt anybody. And now this. Scared to death in a crappy apartment. Min puts the babies in the kitchen, but they keep crawling out. Aunt Bernie's in a shroud on this sort of dolly, and on the couch are a bunch of forms to sign. We call Ma and Freddie. We get their machine. Ma, pick up, says Min. Something bad happened. Ma, please freaking pick up. But nobody picks up, so we leave a message. Lobton's funeral parlor is just a regular house on a regular street. Inside, there's a rack of brochures with titles like, Why Does My Loved One Appear Somewhat Larger? Lobton looks healthy, maybe 
too healthy. He's wearing a yellow golf shirt and his biceps keep involuntarily flexing. Every now and then he touches his delts as if to confirm they're still big as softballs. Such a sad thing, he says. How much? asks Jade. I mean, like for basic, not super fancy. But not crappy either, says Min. Our aunt was the best. What price range were you considering? says Lobton, cracking his knuckles. We tell him and his eyebrows go up and he leads us to something that looks like a moving box. Prior to usage, we'll moisture-proof this with the spray lacquer, he says. Makes it look quite wood-like. That's all we can get, says Jade. Cardboard? I'm actually offering you a slight break already, he says, and does a kind of push-up against the wall. On account of the tragic circumstances, this is Sierra Sunset. Not exactly cardboard, more of a fiberboard. I don't know, says Min. Seems pretty jippy. Can we think about it? says Ma. Absolutely, says Lopton. Last time I checked, this was still America. I step over and take a closer look. There are staples where Aunt Bernie's spine would be. Down at the foot, there's some writing about folding tab A into slot B. No freaking way, says Jade. Work your whole life and end up in a Mayflower box? I doubt it. We've got zip and savings. We sit at a desk and Lopton does what he calls a credit calc. If we pay it out monthly for seven years, we can afford the amber mist, which includes a double-thick balsa box and two coats of lacquer in a one-hour wake. But seven years, geez, says Ma. We gotta get her the good one, says Min. She never had anything nice in her life. So amber mist it is. We bury her at St. Leo's on the hill up near Bastco. Her part of the graveyard's pretty plain, no angels, no little rock houses, no flowers, just a bunch of flat stones like parking bumpers and here and there a styrofoam cup. Father Brian says a prayer and then one of us is supposed to talk. But what's there to say? She never had a life. Never married, no kids, work, work, work. Did she ever go on a cruise? All her life it was buses. Buses, buses, buses. Once, she went with Ma on a bus to Quigley, Kansas to gamble and shop in an outlet mall. Someone broke into her room and stole her clothes and took a dump in her suitcase while they were at the Roy Clark show. That was it. That was the extent of her tourism. After that, it was drug town, night and day. After 15 years as cashier, she got demoted to greeter. People would ask where the cold remedies were, and she'd point to some big letters on the wall that said, Cold Remedies. Freddie, Ma's boyfriend, steps up and says he didn't know her very long, but she was an awful nice lady and left behind a lot of love, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. While it's true she didn't do much in her life, still she was very dear to those of us who knew her and never made a stink about anything, but was always content with whatever happened to her, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. Then it's over and we're supposed to go away. We gotta come out here like every week, says Jade. I know I will, says Min. What, like I won't? says Jade. She was so freaking nice. I'm sure you swear at a grave, says Min. Since when is freak a swear, chick? says Jade. Girls, says Ma. I hope I did okay in what I said about her, says Freddy in his full of crap way, smelling bad of English Navy. Actually, I sort of surprised myself. Bye-bye, Aunt Bernie, says Min. Bye-bye, Bern, says Jade. Oh, my dear sister, says Ma. 
I scrunch my eyes tight and try to picture her happy, laughing, poking me in the ribs. But all I can see is her terrified on the couch. It's awful. Out there somewhere is whoever did it. Someone came in our house, scared her to death, watched her die, went through our stuff, stole her money. Someone who's still living, someone who right now might be having a piece of pie or running an errand or scratching his ass. Someone who, if he wanted to, could drive west for three days or whatever and sit in the sun by the ocean. We stand a few minutes with heads down and hands folded. Afterward, Freddie takes us to Trabanti's for lunch. Last year, Trabanti died and three Vietnamese families went in together and bought the place and it still serves pasta and pizza and the big oil of Trabanti is still on the wall, but now from the kitchen comes this very pretty Vietnamese music and the food is somehow better. Freddie proposes a toast. Min says, remember how Bernie always called lunch dinner and dinner supper? Jade says, remember how when her jaw clicked, she'd say she needed oil? She was an excellent lady, says Freddie. I already miss her so bad, says Ma. I'd like to kill that fuck that killed her, says Min. How about let's don't say fuck at lunch, says Ma. It's just a word, Ma, right, says Min, like pluck is just a word. You don't mind if I say pluck, 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 pluck? Well, shit's just a word, too, says Freddie, but we don't say it at lunch. Same with puke, says Ma. Shit puke, shit puke, says Min. The waiter clears his throat. Ma glares at Min. I love you girls' manners, Ma says. Especially at a funeral, says Freddie. This ain't a funeral, says Min. The question in my mind is what you kids are going to do now says Freddy, because I consider this whole thing a wake-up call, meaning it's time for you to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps like I done and get out of that dangerous crap hole you're living at. Mr. Phonepole speaks, says Min. Anyways, it ain't that dangerous, says Jade. A woman gets killed and it ain't that dangerous, says Freddy. All we need is a deadbolt and an eye hole, says Min. What's a bootstrap, says Jade. It's like a strap on a boot, you doof, says Min. Plus, where are we going to go, says Jade. Can we move in with you guys? I personally would love that, and you know that, says Freddy, but who would not love that as our landlord? I think what Freddy's saying is it's time for you girls to get jobs, says Ma. Yeah, right, Ma, says Min. After what happened last time? When I first moved in, Jade and Min were working the info booth at Hardware Niche, and one day we picked the babies up at daycare and found Troy sitting naked on top of the washer and Mac in the yard being nipped by a Pekingese and the daycare lady sloshed and playing killer birds on Nintendo. So that was that. No more hardware niche. Maybe one could work, one could babysit, says Ma. I don't see why I should have to work so she can stay home with her baby, says Min. And I don't see why I should have to work so she can stay home with her baby, says Jade. It's like a freaking visa versa, says Min. Let me tell you something, says Freddy. Something about this country. Anybody can do anything, but first they gotta try. And you guys ain't. Two don't work and one strips naked. I don't consider that trying. You kids make squat. And therefore, you live in a dangerous crap hole. And what happens in a dangerous crap hole? Bad tragic shit. It's the freaking American way. You start out in a dangerous crap hole and work hard so you can someday move up to a somewhat less dangerous crap hole. And finally, maybe you get a mansion. But at this rate, you ain't even going to make it to the somewhat less dangerous crap hole. Like you live in a mansion, says Jade. 
I do not claim to live in no mansion, says Freddy, but then again, I do not live in no slum. The other thing I also do not do is strip naked. Thank God for small favors, says Min. Anyways, he's never actually naked, says Jade, which is true. I always have on at least a teaback. No wonder we never take these kids out to a nice lunch, says Freddy. I do not even consider this a nice lunch, says Min. That was the first half of Sea Oak by George Saunders. And now, a brief conversation between George and I and a song I wrote in response. I recently interviewed someone, uh, Kat Edmondson, a wonderful songwriter, um, and she objected to uh, my cutting myself out of the, the conversation and just centering her the way I do, kind of, you know, this American lifestyle. So I've, I've been making it a practice to sort of ask if you have any thoughts on that. If you have feeling that it matters uh, or doesn't matter, I'm interested. Well, I love what you do in either case, but I, I love hearing your, your thoughts on it for sure, you know, and I think sometimes this, this is such an intimate process that we that we engage in on your show that I, you know, I'm always happy for more you for sure. All right. I hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so with that in mind, one of the things I wanted to ask you was this was your pick. You wanted this story to be what we worked on. What was it about this story knowing that, you know, you've you've written a lot of, you know, recent stories, uh, really ex- extraordinary and, and affecting stories that in my mind would maybe be a little bit more present to you. So I, I'm curious what, what it was about this one that it was like, because it was pretty quick that you, you decided on this one. It's really, you know, as I'm getting more and more ancient, it's kind of, I think, maybe my favorite. It's older, for sure, and it was kind of, it was such a genuine surprise at the time. You know, usually you have some kind of a plan, and this one, I I just didn't, and and it got out of hand. You know, it got darker than I meant it to, and then certain speeches, like that Bernie made, it came so quickly, and they were just like, whoa, I did not know I felt that way, you know. It might be a little bit like, you know, like you think of some of these musicians who have an early song that's just crazy, and it's just like them. And then they get a career and then they start cleaning up their act a little bit, you know, make things a little more balanced and sensible. And, you know, so for me, it was that kind of first blurt where I, I, I think before the story, I'm not sure I would have even known that class was a thing with me. You know, I really had the feeling in those last that last month of working on it that I had almost like prepared a feast. And then when a bunch of people who weren't supposed to be there came in, I'd say, get out, get out, get out, get out. And meanwhile, the food's just sitting there. And at the last minute, the person I meant the feast to before came through, you know, something like that. So it was a kind of a unique uh, experience compositionally for me. So I really, I really treasure. So that's kind of why I mentioned it. And also I, I was really sad that they didn't make the movie, to be honest with you, that we didn't go ahead with the TV show. That's a, that's one of maybe the one thing I feel a little bitter about or sad in my, my career that we didn't get to go ahead. Cause we had such amazing actors, Glenn Close and just a bunch of incredible young people. And they were all excited and I was excited and, uh, so it was, it was a, a drag that we didn't get to go on. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was, and I'm sorry, by the way, that you've now heard this story refracted like a lot. And, and I was curious whether there were any parts of hearing it refracted through my song and through Craig's uh, song that was notable or of interest next to, you know, the the long process I know of developing the show and, and all of 
which I've, I've heard you talk about uh, with, you know, a lot of joy that, that it was a really interesting process to you. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, in your song, what I what I was reminded of is that that story is primarily a pretty joyful thing. And when and when you hit your chorus in there with those harmonies, it's just it's just so weirdly uplifting in such a you know in such a dark matrix. So that made me remember that, you know, sometimes I think what makes a work of art interesting is when you're looking at it and you can't really discern what it wants to be. It's there's there's complex overtones, and in Sea Oak, that was always this terrible you know these terrible things happening, but it was funny. So the reader who's trying to reduce and discard it can't do it. It's like, well, wait a minute, I thought this was funny. Why is there a, you know, an old lady falling apart? I thought this was tragic. Why is this back and forth so funny? So I think also in, in, in your song and in Craig's song, there's a feeling of here's some really deep, sad, bad truths, but the musical feeling is quite celebratory. You know, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but I read that they, they found out that a cancer cell really likes sugar so if you if you want to do chemo, you put you put sugar in there, it opens up, and then the, the the poison gets in better. So I think sometimes that's a feeling I have in art. Like you got to make it fun, so that the real you know darker truths can get in there. So that I, I really appreciated. And I, I like how you, you've actually made us a cancer now. Yeah. Uh, what, what we're doing to the, uh, the hosts that we're infecting. <laughs> Actually, that, that leads me towards something that I, I did want to bring up, which is this story leans a little harder towards rage and disgust than a lot of the ways that you tend towards, you know, there, there is satire, there, there is, you know, comment on the difficult places we are in. But for example, the sort of vicious uh, reality TV shows, the cruelty of the patrons at work feel to me like something that you maybe would be a little bit less likely to frame. Uh, you, you might be a little bit more forgiving to the people behind those actions, it feels to me. And I was wondering if that's just something that I'm fantasizing or whether that actually feels right to you as well. No, that's really perceptive. And this is a great example of why you should leave yourself in right here. And I think what's happened is a combination of things. On the one hand, I think I've become genuinely more understanding and moderate as a person, which I'm happy about. On the other hand, I like that rage because that rage is a, a valid human position. I think the most powerful thing, and you look at like Chekhov, for example, or Shakespeare, they're able to recall and then enact a whole bunch of often contradictory stances on things. That's really the power of Shakespeare. he'll He'll be a lovesick teenager and then pivot and be an old person laughing at being lovesick. And, and both of them will be completely convincing, you know? So I, I kind of, I remember being quite angry about, you know, uh, American media and American capitalism. I like to think I could still get there on the page if I needed to, you know, but I think that happens, you know, you get older and maybe you, well, for one thing, just artistically, you don't want to get stuck. You know, you don't want to be an angry young man until you're 90, because, simply because it's repetitive. But then I think authentically, you do kind of say, well, you know, it's not us and them. I mean, I've certainly been a dick before, you know, so therefore, let's not be the person who thinks all those people. That story, that's actually one of the reasons I like it is because I was, I kind of had the gloves off there as a person who normally, if I notice the gloves are off, I'll put them on. You know, that's kind of my personality always has been. It was kind of fun for that period of writing to just say, no, the gloves are staying off.
something you once said to Ezra Klein struck me. At the time, you were talking about climate change and your response was, you know, the only sort of path is to have a sense of humility about your place in the world. And I heard someone quote uh, a French philosopher, I forget who, who said the only uh, answer to despair is humility. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, at least for me, that is part of what it is to, to grow old. To still feel the disgust and the anger and, and the upset yeah. of viewing the world yeah. and, and experiencing it, but also knowing how uh, small we are within it and, and how small our, our roles are. No, that's beautifully said. And I, and I think too, though, you know, as an artist, I, the thing I really aspire to is to be able to recreate all the different mindsets I've ever had. And I think the, the that chameleon-like ability to say, okay, I'm an unfairly biased a person who can't stand the city of whatever. Okay, do that. And now I'm a, 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 a proud citizen of that place who's given my all for it. Okay, be that. That That's what I really love. And now it's easier said than done because as, as you're saying, you know, you do acquire things that feel like wisdom. And it's harder, I think, to recreate that sort of naked state of being that say you were when you were 18 and you, you know, you hated the man or whatever, you know, that that's hard. And I think the great artists somehow have a little more open access to those things. And in me, I know what, what kind of corrodes that open access is my pride in my recently acquired wisdom. <laughs> you know, my, my, I'm, 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 I finally arrived at a place of correctness, you know? And I think, you know, in a way, an artist is really not, doesn't necessarily get a lot of points for being correct. We pay essayists for that maybe, or, or you know, maybe the odd politician, but I think what we want to be is varied. And the, and the result of that, I think, for the reader would be a kind of, you know, more complex understanding of whatever that situation was that in turn would be a powerful thing. But I think that the um, kind of weird idea of saying every every human state is valid and can be represented, and I'm gonna put a bunch of them into one book. That's what really excites me at the moment. The person you picked for this, Craig Finn, what was it that made you think that of, of him in particular for the, for this story? Well, I mean, you know, his songs are so full of the qualities I try to get in my work, which is the, a big idea, a big compassionate idea put across with specific, really particular details that you can't ignore. That, that to me is a really powerful method, you know, and I don't know how he writes, but it feels to me like he is mostly concentrating on the details, on the physical details, but also the details of the the melody and the harmonies and so on. And then, as is true for me, and I can feel it's true for you as well, if you do that, you you concentrate on the tech stuff, the technical stuff, the spirit will find you. You know, the spirit is sort of sitting in the back room like, look, I'm not that easy, you know. I'm not just going to jump into your story. you got to prepare the way a little bit. And then you start setting the technical stuff up. And at some point, very spontaneously, this idea will enter. And if you're really doing it right, you didn't know that idea was coming. And you and you maybe didn't even know that idea was yours. It, you know, like in this story, when she says, some people got everything and I got nothing, that was a surprise to me. That was, a, that was news to me. I'd never really thought of the world that way before. I do feel like that's like one of the the things that I struggle with, knowing 
which things I've done before. Right. When I'm I'm going back to the same set of chords, and when I'm going for the same descending melodic line over it, and and when on the other hand, you have to allow yourself to be like, well, yeah, this is me, and I still love the same things I love. Right. And sort of. Uh, inviting the surprising, inviting the off the beaten path while being willing to embrace the thing that, you know, that feels right at home, the, the you know, the, the home cooked meal that you, you know, know exactly how to make and you don't even have to think about it. Um, and and that, that can be a challenge. Exactly. I think that's 100% of the job. It's the pisser of you. How do you know which one it is? Am I, am I repeating myself or am I doing the thing I love? And the story goes, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? And and then over and over, you have to make that decision in the moment. Yeah, that that's really true. Because if it was one or the other, it'd be kind of easy. Thou shalt never repeat thyself. Okay, that's easy. But but you you are um, by repeating yourself, you're building a higher platform, I think, for yourself to ask the same questions. So I I, I mean, the only litmus test I have is if the if the vague self repetition in the end is allowing me to get to a higher place on the mountain, then I'll I'll accept it. If I do the repetition and it yields the same result that's just repetition with a you know with a capital r <laughs> so he can't do that but it was really funny you know, when when we made the pilot there was um you know i'd never really been on a set before and of course you you know you shoot these things uh, you shoot a given scene on a given day and so the day came when uh, glenn close as bernie was going to give that speech you know and uh it was really something and she's so amazing and it was it also was kind of like you know sometimes you wonder if, if something you've done has power and to hear her do it and to find things in it you think well that was pretty that was that that impulse was good in the first place so even though it's pretty perverse glenn found a way to sell it you know and to make it feel completely like what bernie would say you know which is really really fun to kind of sit in the next room and watch it on the monitor and just go oh wow <laughs> I, I believe that you know i believe in her it, it must feel not unlike what it feels like when you're, you know, finally recording a song that you demoed at home and you bring in, you know, someone really extraordinary to play on it. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. right. That's yeah, the because stuff. they find something to uplift or, you know, they, they found they find a little ledge to stand on in what you did, which proves that you the design was OK in the first place. Right. Speaking of which, you know, your first reaction to these songs was to say the story must be all right to, you know, engender to help create these these two songs. You know, it's a moment of uh, sort of self-doubt that I don't often hear from you, although you are a very humble person. The the framing of that startled me because I, I, I had the sense that that was true, that you, you genuinely felt that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think as I'm as I'm getting older and I'm trying to go deeper everything is conditional, you know? So, so I think that I have always believed that to be a good story, but I also believe you could wake up one day and go, that is now invalid, you know? That, that's not speaking to people anymore. It happens all the time in art, you know? I'm finding that I'm happy to have done all that work, but I'm also willing to throw it in the fire if it's needed to do the next thing, you know? So, so but when somebody, still, when somebody responds positively to something, it, it's nice. And, and especially if they respond in the form that you guys did, that's really, really nice, you know? It's funny because, you, you know, you, you see when you get to a certain this point in your life, you look back at people who, you know, when you were a kid, they were huge. Everybody loved their work. It made perfect sense to everybody. And now 
people go, oh yeah, that was that was a song once, you know, or that was this, that story has some currency, and and it can go away just because the culture, the culture goes in a different direction. All the presumptions that the song was built on, and all the things it embodied, might just now be old, old news, you know. So it's always good to hear that something old is still working for somebody. Yeah, there's a, a vocal tick that was you know, sort of really common in the 90s as I was first starting to record, which was this sort of like achy breaky <laughs> that, yeah. you know, was all over <laughs> pop music. And and it is one of those things that like, if I, my wife or, or kid are listening to uh, some of my old music and I hear it in the background, that's one of those things where it's just like, oh God. Right. It sounded mm. fine at the time. It sounded current and, and almost, I would say, necessary right, at the time. Right. And now it, 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 it's just excruciating. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes I hear those old kind of uh, 1930s Rudy Valley teffing. When the moon is an You know, and you think, wow, they really thought that was it. That was the cool way to sing back then. And now it, 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 it instantly stamps it with a, a date and a timeline. And the thing that I love about that is that that pitch was not only a product of recording technology, and that's what got picked up, but also performance spaces. Like that, that was the tenor sound that would shoot back into the back rows, uh, whereas the crooning stuff, they really couldn't do that until the microphones were powerful enough to, to pick up. Oh, interesting. I read somewhere that one of the reasons Lincoln was a great orator was he had a really high-pitched, reedy voice that would, you know, without microphones, would carry out over a big crowd. So I had a kind of a, and, and that would somehow, I guess it was weird, but it was also the, the tone that people could hear from several hundred yards away in a crowd. I sent the demo of the song I wrote in response to Sea Oak to both George and the extraordinary songwriter, Vienna Tang, hoping I could bait one or the other of them into collaborating. A few weeks later, George sent me some lyrics that I couldn't quite figure out how to fit into the song. There was more cock than you traditionally expect in a mid-tempo waltz, so I sent them off to Vienna. As you'll hear, she had no problems whatsoever. This is Love Don't Fall Apart, featuring Vienna Tang on vocals and piano and lyrical contributions by George Saunders. As sincere as ridiculous A requiem in comic sense You light your last one like it's heaven sent You lay down your other hand I always said our love was infinite Forever's forever stand now things are looking permanent Despite all your plans Love don't, love don't fall apart Don't fall apart This time around it's more than personal I will get what I deserve My life ended and begun again Overtaxed and underserved Are you gonna be a clown 
my song, Love Don't Fall Apart. One note, when I said earlier in the interview that Kat Edmondson objected to me not including my part of the conversation, it sounded a little bit as if I thought she was being petulant or difficult. Quite the contrary, Kat was interested, engaged, and kind, and I couldn't be more grateful for her perspective and the ways that she has helped shape this show. Thank you, Kat. For the second half of George's story and a song from Craig Finn, please listen to part two. 